Daryl Limby. I don't need to talk forward, do I? No, nah, you can no, we'll just have a talk. Yeah, yeah, you okay. know? Life in the Peloton. I'm Mitch Docker, and today we've got Daryl Limpy, uh, South African, and we're going to talk about Daryl's up and down his his up and down career. And he's had many points in his career, I think, where the road could have gone left or right, and he the road was much easier to go left. And he just went, you know what? I'm not done. I'm going to go back right. And some really really tough moments which I think has made him into the amazing writer he is today that we all see on the TV today. But firstly, what I want to talk to him about is, well, we can hear the bells in the background. We're here in Girona, and that's what I want to talk to him about is we're back in our second home. We're settling back into Europe, and we're going to explain to everyone out there that we do have two homes and what it's like to be living away from home, home away from home. But firstly, welcome, Daryl Limpy. Thanks, Mitch. It's nice to be on the potty. It's been, uh, seen so many other big names on you, so I'm doing something right to get on the, get a gig on the show. Yeah, so you're happy to be here. <laughs> welcome. Like, um, we had to wait to an appropriate time and uh, wait till the afternoon so we get a quite, quite little beer in while we're doing it. That's it. Good. Crazy hour at home, so we've chosen a good time as well. Um, kids are coming back from school. <laughs> Ali's pulling her hair. What are we doing? Look, I had commitments. I had a beer. So yeah. this special time, <laughs> beer o'clock, 5, 5, 5 p.m. So it's a good time to just uh, wind down a little bit and have a chat. Yeah, it is actually. Uh, I've sent my, sent my wife out with uh, little Marlo, so it's all worked out very good. Um, all right, well, let's talk about where we are. Um, explain, Daryl, what it is to... Because maybe everyone doesn't know this, but cycling is, I think, it's a, traditionally a European sport. And therefore, similar to, say, soccer, the, the main season is in Europe. Mm. So if you want to be a part of this season, this world, you have to move your life to Europe. And... We race over here, racing for all our different teams, even though you and I used to race together on an Australian team, um, Green Edge as I still call it, but it's Mitchell's and now, everyone still used to think that, yeah, you're on an Australian team, you must live in Australia, but no, we're in Europe, and even to another degree, we're not all in the one place. We get to choose where we live in Europe, and we travel from there to our different races. But the point is, when we make that choice to where we want to live, it's much more of an important choice that people underestimate because you have to make it your home. Mm. And even though our home is Melbourne for me and South Africa for you, whereas in South Africa, Johannesburg, Johannesburg, you go, well, I have to get, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but I have to quickly make this my home and make it comfortable and, you know, go from there. 
So explain to me, now that we're back in Europe for the start of the new season, explain to me that whole theory of when you first came across to Europe to now, how, how Girona's become your home, second home. Um, well, you know, the first, first time I came was 2010 um, when I'd signed with Radio Shack. I'd come here because I couldn't actually get a visa in Italy. I was living in Italy with Bilobal before then. Um, so I was battling to with the visas and the applications. That's another story to all of all of the South Africans who struggle to get here. Is that even to get a visa to come here is difficult. Whereas in Australia, can still come over here, overstay the 90 days. If they don't get caught <laughs> by the police, us we've actually got a physical, you know, visa. It states the days exactly, and we yeah, have to right. be out. And you can only stay three months within a six-month period. So there has to be then three months where you're not here. You would have to not be here. And, uh, you know, so all of those those like little tricky parts are kind of what brought me to Girona, whereas I could get a, I could get a residency visa here easier. Mm. So I moved here in 2010. And uh, then I was here really alone. I was still dating Ali, which is my wife. And... Uh, so I, it was a bit different then. I was actually a bit lost here, even you know by myself, you know catching up with a lot of single guys that also didn't have their wives or girlfriends here. And we would, you know, and actually the results showed from that too because yeah. uh, you know go out for a sneaky beer here and then a sneaky beer would turn into a couple of beers and then it'd be a late night <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's two o'clock and we're in the park in Girona and you know miss a day's training the next day and you get a bit lost in it all. So. Um, <laughs> When I came here, I think I was still figuring it out. Yeah. And it was only when, you know, two years later, when I actually signed with Green Edge, was um, when we act, when I actually started to feel like I was going to make this my home. I think in between that, I was kind of all over the show. Then I'd lost my contract at Radio Shack, and I actually closed up here. I went back to South Africa, raced for MTN, which is Quebec, mm. Dimension Data now. And I closed up here in Spain, and I left only a few little items there, Dan Martin's place. And I said, no, man, if I ever come back, I'll come and collect these things. If I don't come back, they're yours. They're yours, you know. Yeah. And, uh, what were they out of interest? It was, a, it was a coffee machine. It was a Cafe Italy, Cafe Italy coffee machine that I had from Bottle Old Days that, yeah. uh, you know, they gave to us there because we were sponsored by them. Uh, it was a few odds and ends, maybe a printer, you know, things, actual, things, crap, actual actually. crap that probably you didn't want, but uh, oh, look, I was going to give it to him, you know, yeah. I was willing to part with it, put it that way, so, <laughs> um, so I left a few things there and uh, came back to, to race in the local scene, and then I got offered to come back with, um, halfway through the year with uh, NetApp, which yeah. is Bora now, and uh, so then I needed a place to stay, and I was actually renting. Yeah. A room from Dan Martin for that period of five months before my wife and I actually moved here, um, probably in 2012. So for four or five months, I actually stayed with Dan Martin mm. back in Girona, yeah. And uh, that was kind of just to get me back on my feet to where I was going. I was a bit lost in my whole career. I didn't know, you know, am I going to get a pro contract? Am I not? It was kind of make or break here. And then uh, 2012, when I signed with just Green Edge then, and then we got married and my wife came over, got her own apartment again. That's, I think, where I started to settle in a bit. Mm. And still then, it's you're coming home to your wife and you're coming home to your own house. Yeah. But you're never, you're never ever coming home. No. I think uh, as a European writers, a lot of them come home. Yeah. They come home to their wives on the weekend. They can maybe, you know, get back on Sunday night. They can maybe have a barbecue with their family and their aunts and uncles and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, they're we in their own town. We don't yeah. have that. No, we, no. we come home and it's like... Came home and uh, and 
oh, I love being with Ali and that, but obviously there's a for both of us there's another aspect there's the aunts the uncles the brothers the cousins the, yeah. and, and that's we miss and that's kind of what brings that home environment and yeah. I think in Girona we're fortunate we've got lots of mates and friends Yeah. but it's still in like a, in the opposite side with the Europeans is that yeah, they, they have that Yeah. and we only see that side of them when they're tired of being in Australia for one month, oh, it's difficult, you know, uh, the time zone is difficult, you know, I cannot talk with my wife and my kid is sleeping, you know. Yeah. These are things we're used to. Yeah. These are, when they come with those stories to us, we're like, what are you talking about? You've been here for three weeks. Like, yeah. we, we've been in this for 10 years, man. Yeah. Because, like, you know how many things we've missed? Like, yeah. And it's and it's those things, like, I, I always get that question, would you, you know, would you live in Europe after your career? But nothing against Europe and I'd love to live in the place lovely place but the family and the friends that aren't in cycling the school friends that you do miss that make up your your normal life yeah exactly I think uh, it's because you've hit the nail head it's, it's not that you dislike Europe at all but you know everyone wants to go home mm. home is where the heart is so it's like you know at the end of the career sure we've, we already know we've, I already know I've sacrificed a lot to be here um, I've taken my wife away from her family you know, she's very close to her mom. Um, you know, her brother now, he's moved to, to Sydney and everyone's kind of all over the show. Um, my brother as well. Uh, you know, all those moments where we could have shared those times together and, of course, you know, the kids and, you mm. know, our, our kids are now, Aiden's turning five soon, the grandparents have seen the children. We've taken that all away from them yeah. doing this. Obviously, it's given us a lot in return, but we've, we've also sacrificed a lot. And I think at the end of my career, it would be foolish to um, to stay abroad and away from mm. them because I think we've I think there's a point in our lives where enough is enough. Enough is enough. Yeah. And family is important. Yeah. And my parents are getting older. My wife's parents are getting older. Our kids are, you know, they they're starting to do some incredible things from running muck around the house. But I mean, they're all growing up, and I think we're taking. It would be nice to actually get back home one day and be like, well, Enjoy. we're back now. We know we've sacrificed a lot in here. Well, I've got two questions for you then. How did you make this feel like home? You talked about Green Edge and, you, and a simple point for me was I changed the furniture from IKEA furniture slowly to furniture that was good stuff, mm. you know? And that was a simple thing because I went you know what, I'm buying good stuff now that I want to take back to Australia. I'm no longer living temporary here. And once I'd made that choice, I started filling my house, my apartment with frame pictures, furniture I actually want to sit in and live in. And suddenly my house turned into from a temporary place into a home. Mm -hmm. What were things that you did that eventually you were like, this is now we're making that choice whether I'm here two more years, whether I'm here 10 more years, I'm living like this is my home here. Um, yeah, I think uh, the the first thing we did was get a decent apartment where we knew, okay, that we're going to be happier. And although the rent at that time seemed excessive, we were like, I think I'd learned from our previous mistakes, like trying to save a buck, mm. how much that affected me. Yeah. I think that once I got into a place where I could like see the light and I could like feel the sun coming into the, the room, it was in this dark, dingy little <laughs> corner spot. I got sun for two hours a day. Um, I think once I found the apartment I wanted to live in, found the area I enjoyed living in, and then like you say, like buying your own furniture, you know, 
just like I have a coffee machine at home I have a rocket coffee machine in South Africa and I was just like well I need to have this here mm. and I want to replicate that here and I was yeah. fortunate to do that and, yeah. okay we want to race by the rocket machine now we're gonna now now it feels even better you know now yeah. now we're getting the similarities of home and trying to make you know and, and just I think I think all those little things mm. I think all that like you say the furniture the getting a car you know having wheels you know before we had a scooter a yeah. little 50cc I still got the 50cc scooter it hasn't been it hasn't been ridden for about three years but um, you know we had a little scooter to get around in the beginning and then once we got a car and it's just yeah I know we we're making life easier for ourselves so yeah. I think once we started making everything easier for ourselves that's when we started like okay now this is becoming a bit like you can home. enjoy it and also when Ali started meeting friends and you know, I wasn't coming home, and she was just relying on me to come home. Uh, once she had met a couple of good mates in Girona and and made a good group of friends, mm-hmm. I felt more comfortable that she was happy. Yeah. And I think once you know that your wives or your girlfriends are happy as well, that takes a lot of stress out of it for us because I think you're in the same boat as yeah. when you brought Lydia from uh, Australia, from, yeah. Australia and from from Belgium, yeah. where you guys were staying up there, and you have to make new friends. That's not easy for them. They have to give up everything start again put up fences put up you know boundaries between this one not you know so dealing with all of that um i think that's the things that take time Mm. but i think we've been fortunate now that we've through green edge through all our teams the english teams that we actually have here and now we've created quite a a group here Mm. a lot of english-speaking people are here and that's opened up doors for a lot of young guys that have come here but I think we've all played a big part in that and creating a good culture here. And yeah, and people you can rely on when shit hits the fan. Yeah. But also when you want to celebrate small occasions, birthdays or whatever, baby showers or whatever it might be, they feel a little more special than, you know, not to sound sad, but when just celebrating with you and your wife, you know, like it's nice to have some extra company around and just yeah. live a bit normally like you would back home. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's exactly it. When, when we all just, I mean, you've seen a couple of nights we've all got together, a whole group of us, especially those guys have ridden together for many years and training groups and we all, there's always one or two times a year where this whole big group of us get together and it's so nice to actually mm. catch up and everyone's like, you know, everyone's just like, wow, hey man, you've had a good season. I haven't actually seen you the whole year. You've been racing so much. But when we all catch up, it's it's a good feeling. And we can rely on each other, yeah. you know, like something really goes wrong or whatever. There's there's guys here, five guys that I know I can call yeah. on and they will be there. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's, you know, we've got to, although, I mean, Gerona is, is a, I mean, it can become quite clicky, I think, now because there's so many people here. Um, I mean, the groups that you make, the people that you meet, you, you really hang around the people you want to hang around with. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that's the simple side of it. But for, for you know, us, when we came here, there was only, I think it was only like eight pros when I was here. Mm. When I first met, it was Dan Martin, I think, uh, Incapi, Miller, Vanderveld, Ryder Tejadal, uh, and one or two others. Mm. You know, there wasn't full diagonal. That was it. And then now we look at it, what's like 80 guys or something? Well, Too um, many guys. Let me ask you this then. This is a question that I know it's not possible, but I always ask myself, could I actually be a pro living in Melbourne, living in my hometown? Could you be a pro living in Johannesburg? Oh. Can you imagine that? No. If, if it was close enough to Europe, could you go there and live and do what you do? Um, if, if, if the flight was one hour, two hours, I probably, I probably be, could. Look, I'd, I'd miss out on a lot. I can tell you that much. You know, training here in Girona is like 
so peaceful. And back home, I've got a following car every day. And it's not because I'm worried about um, someone shooting me. It's about more car, the safety on the road yeah. is terrible. So I think that would get to me. And yeah. I could get you and it's just so peaceful and it's just so nice. So many different, you know, the people in Spain here are very respectful like, compared to South Africa. They respect bike riders here. Yeah. So like, I appreciate that when I come here. So if you ask me about where would I choose to, to do my, my training and my racing, it'd still be here if I was, you know. What about the whole package with the family and everything? friends yeah and no, I think I think then I would probably you know that for a training perspective I'd be here but yeah definitely I think if if I had to give up the family like I have I'd rather have it I'd okay. rather still be back training in Joburg and dealing with the traffic um, but yeah you know th- this has opened up so many opportunities for us I mean coming abroad here mm-hmm. is that Okay, I'm not your best Spanish speaker, but I've learned a different culture, learned a little bit of a different language, or oh, big difference, can't speak it much, but, um, <laughs> you know, we go to, go to school with the kids, and it's obviously a Catalan school, I'm not six-year-old, five-year-old, six-year-old, he's, he's already rappling on there, Aiden, and we don't know what the hell the school's telling us, so like, it's been fantastic for the kids to learn yeah. something new and we go there like dancers and it's you know like my biggest fear is when they send us some of the school newsletter and I'm like oh, could you not just email this to us because then I can put it into Google, Google, Translate. Google Translate and know what the stuff's going on <laughs> so yeah there's quite like it's quite exciting it's quite fun and it's like it's it's good to get you out of your comfort zone I think mm. that that's like a good part about living abroad is what, the part that I enjoy and different cultures we experience and all that kind of stuff. Well, let me talk about that. So you've got two kids and you've got one on the way. Probably next week. Next week. She's ready to pop. And it was, it was like trying to get you in today. It was like, mate, I've got to be close to home just in case. And what I wanted to ask you is, does that create, how, how does that affect you positively and negatively? What is a new baby? How, what, how does that affect you for your career? Uh, you know, I'm fortunate that Ellie's very capable. Um, she's kind of the one that holds it together. I think if it was me on my own there trying to run the show, there's no way I could do what she's doing. But uh, yeah, I, I think it doesn't it doesn't really affect me because she takes on so much of the so much of the flack. She's the one that's like getting up at night. She's the one that's dealing with that. Okay, I occasionally help out where I can. <laughs> But I'm not. Give you know, yourself some credit here, mate. Yeah, I'm yeah, a little bit. Bastard. I am. I'm a little bit lazy. Well, not lazy, but the, you know the best thing is when you actually have to change your first nappy and she asks you to do it. You used to a bad job, yeah. so she doesn't ask you to do it again. <laughs> so no, but, I mean she's. I'm lucky that she's so so willing and so she loves being a mom and she loves being around the kids. So she takes a lot of that that pressure off me, and I and I obviously focus on what I have to do. But um, that's not to say I don't add in around the house you know the, the two other boys need a lot of attention as well um, so it's hard to it's hard to it's only really hard when you're trying to really go for an event and you know sleep is important and I've got it like I've got six hours tomorrow and I you know I want to eat right and I want to mm. do things right but then one kid selling wants to play soccer on the balcony quickly and the other one's sick inside and your wife's tired she's been up all night you're not going to get sympathy there so it's <laughs> dealing with all those little things where you're like Okay, I can't shout at my kid because I'm tired because I'm like, quad has been drilling me in training. Yeah. I can't be like that. I've got to change my mindset a bit and just be, try and do everything I can. Yeah. I guess that's what it is. You just try and do what you can. Yeah. And 
normally it's enough. You know, yeah. we I think us as bike riders, as people in general, as sportsmen, you're always trying to be the best. Yeah. And actually, you don't Sometimes. always have to be the best. You, you just what you're doing is enough is enough. Yeah. I think that's what uh, what I can take out of it. Really, is like you know, of course, there's goals and there's things coming up, but ultimately, like. We're doing what we can, you know. The, to have a child in your life and never be seen as something that's like holding you back for cycling races or things mm. like that. It's such a it's such a joy. Well, we got Yen Devoid. How many kids did he have? He's got, I think, six or seven. And he was riding strong as an ox at the end. So, like, if you're ever feeling sorry for yourself, yeah. and sometimes I have with with one child, <laughs> I'm like, hang on, Ims has got two. Buddy, you know, Jens Voigt's got six. How about I just get on with it, you know? So, yeah, yeah, I don't know how he does six. Jeez, hats off to him. Six is a lot. I mean, <laughs> two's like, two's a really hectic and three, we're like bracing ourselves for impact. But, um, oh man, it's, it's been so, so, so much fun actually with him. Mm. I think I've, I've grown up as a person and actually it's like, you know, we were discussing it not so long ago. It's like, you just got shit to do now. Yeah. You got training, you come back, you relax, you do what you got to do with the kids or you got to help out around the house. And the next day, you're not sitting at the brew shop anymore afterwards, hanging with your mates. And it's not because you, your wife told you can't. You I just, just, just want to get home. Yeah. And that's where it comes in. Like home now is with the kids and with Ali and it doesn't need to be physically in Johannesburg. But that is our life. You know, in between those walls is... The MP family, the little MP nation, they're hanging out there. And there's, you don't want to be just hanging out on the road, you want to get back to the family. No, you know, they're just sitting there and just waiting for you to come home and you feel almost guilty. Like, because you, you want to be with them you, and, that's, and it's natural. I think, uh, you know, there's days where I say, oh, I might have a coffee with the boys and my wife's like, oh, I can go and enjoy that. You know, like you haven't had a coffee with the boys for ages. Mm. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, we all like, um, how can I say it? For, for us, I think it's just so like, it's nice to just be home. Mm. That's it, really, you know? It's I, think it, I think for me, and maybe you can agree or disagree, is that cycling for me transitions really into, you know, a job that I love to do yeah. rather than just a passion. You know, in the beginning there, it really was a passion over in Europe living the dream yeah. and not that it's still not the dream but like when I go out and do my training it's it's a work day get out there get it done I still love doing it yeah. but I'm not just fluffing around you know cruising around the sun get the work done get home and enjoy my time off when yeah. I'm done I mean do you th- I mean you you, you say so I mean for you you think like it's brought us a purpose hasn't mm. it like before you used to ride and you used to ride to because you wanted to do well in the races and you want to make money and do well and you know you want to be seen as this this new Eddie Merckx or whatever it is you know um, but now you've you just actually you've got that purpose like mm. you go you nail it you and you home. come home yeah. it's pretty simple it's like knock on, like log in for work and log out well on that note let's go into your career because you've had a really interesting career and the person that you've transitioned into now is very different to the person that you started as but maybe not because when we go all the way back to 2008 well it's actually 2009 that's when you first debuted as a pro with Barlow World in 2008 yeah but in 2009 in Tour of Turkey you ended up winning that in the GC 
And that's something that you're doing right now with the last win you had, Tour Down, well, not the last win, national champion, but before that, the Tour Down Under. A long time in, in between that, you rolled around as a super domestique with a few wins there as well. But I want to go through part by part your career, not to tell the whole story, but I think it's pretty important to understand your career because I don't think a lot of people know it. And when you start reading through, you know all the events, but you start putting them together and you're like, hang on. Well, this is certainly what I did when I was researching you. I'm like, hang on. You had numerous opportunities to go, that's it, you know, because like, let's go back to 2009. True Turkey was the last stage. The last stage. It was the last stage. You're in the yellow jersey, coming into the sprint, the final sprint, and Teo Boss, who used to be a pro with Rabobank, came from behind and physically grabbed, grabbed your jersey and pulled you off. And I'm going to put this in the show notes, this clip. I went back and had a look at it, and I vaguely had a memory of it. And I thought, oh, yeah, I think Ims got bumped off into the barriers. I went back and had a look at this footage. And you're just like, how has that ever got away? You know, and I think that was a real, in the beginning of your career, almost a turning point then and there. Just run us through that quickly, what, what happened there? Well, it was just pretty much coming to the sprint. Uh, final sprint, leader's jersey. I had one second uh, lead on a guy called David Malakane, and, um, you know, from Quickstep. So I knew, you know, Quickstep, how they race, they race for any kind of win. So I knew they were still going to try to win the stage or try to get some bonus seconds. So I had to be up there for the sprint. I, I didn't really want to take part in the sprint, but... Um, so I had to be up there. And it was just coming into the last 500 metres. Ty gave me a push to... Well, I was on the barrier already, and Taylor tried to squeeze through and try to push past me, and I was just holding my line, you know. And then next minute, I just felt his hand on my shoulder, and we were down in the barriers and mm. came down. Um, you know, he says he hit the he hit the little what do you call it, little, little foot peg on the on the rail, and that's what. And he he grabbed me. His reaction was to grab something, and he grabbed me and he pulled me down. And you know. Still to the day, I don't believe it. But, uh, you know, and we've had a few races where we've ridden against each other. I think the last time I actually saw him was Tour of Alberta. And he actually was pissing down in the rain there, and we're at the back of the peloton. And he was like, hey, man, I wanted to get up for a chat there. And I'm like, oh, gave him like half a hay. And then uh, he was like, uh, we got discussing or something. And then he's like, yeah, everyone's always discussing, you know, this accident with me and you. And I was like, yeah, it wasn't just an accident, mate. This wasn't just like a quick little spill. And he was like, yeah, you know, but they make always such a big deal about things, you know, they keep on this, they still bring up this accident. Oh, it was pretty full on. Mm. You know, it doesn't really, you don't really see things like that that often. And uh, that was the moment there. I just brought him up, pulled him up straight up and just said, right, yeah. you and me, yeah, buddy. No one else says to know. You can tell me right now if yeah. you crash me or not. On yeah. purpose, tell me now. And he was like, ah, oh, you didn't do it. Yeah. And I still can't accept that. It's a hard one to... It's yeah, a but hard, I don't think you have to. Like, no, it's like, I just watched the footage and I think... Yeah, just we, watch the footage. The thing is, we had no bad blood before that. You know, we didn't have a bluey throughout the whole tour. It was the first time I actually raced tour. So, we never actually run into mm. each other. We had no issues during the race. So, I couldn't work it out. 
I just know Rabobank was riding the last day for the sprint for him, that's all, and, and he was in a bad posse, and yeah, I was kind of the guy that took the brunt of it, but um, you know, it was quite funny, because then you had like Robbie Hunter, who's a South African, and a good friend of mine, and he was like, after grabbing Theo in the in the hotel room, and I always had a backup with Robbie in the beginning of my career, I always had a guy that stared up for me when no one else would, and it was funny, because UCI and all those people just like downplayed the incident they're just like oh relegated to the back of the bunch you know MP wins he'll be happy with the win and I think it was also because I was small fry yeah I think Teo was this big World Cup Kieran champion and he was this world champion and uh, I was just down MP just at the bottom there you know just like oh he won the tour and like it's, you know and it was only when Lance Armstrong and Robbie McEwen and all these guys Twitter just actually started then and uh, I think I got it like 10,000 followers just through that week of just lost <laughs> tweeting my name. Um, and just saying how ridiculous it was, how the UCI hadn't dealt with it properly. And then I remember like, you know, a few months later after being, I was in ICU for two weeks. Uh, and, and that's why, just before you go on, that's why I want to talk to you. The main point I brought this up was that moment there, what was the situation from that crash that you had to deal with in order then for you to go, well, what was what was the repercussions of that crash? So I I broke my jaw yeah. and I fractured my L1 vertebra on my back, and uh, you're in Turkey in, too. In Turkey, so I was in Turkey for a week in ICU there, and then I got transferred, did my first international transfer as a medical patient. Back First of many. Yeah, but this was like a repatriation thing. Yeah. It was like bring them back to South Africa, bring the guy back home. And uh, I remember, man, they took nine seats in the economy class, so they laid them flat, and then like they brought me up through the, they brought me up through the food truck. Through so I came, really? I came in the 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 thing that they used to bring the food up. And Why like wouldn't they just put you in first class? Wouldn't that be cheaper? <laughs> I don't know. Nine seats. Nine, and then they flew two nurses with me too to like check up and check the vitals and all this stuff because I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to move. Like so, I just stay on my back for two. I I was on my back for six weeks. And I was in a back brace. Do they and, put a uh, curtain around? No. Nah. It was just like next to next to just random guys. It was the weirdest experience ever. But going through the food truck was like, and then coming through the aisle. Now they couldn't turn me to the side, and I had to go straight vertically. So I needed a person in front of me, a person behind me. And I was like, man, just don't drop me. I was just standing up straight, and strapped in. I was like, man, if someone drops me, I'm just either going face planting or I'm falling on my back. There's oh, no you were just standing up. Oh, I was yeah, on the no, board. On the board. Up. Yeah, on the board. They were just carrying me like that. And then they just like lay me down, they strapped me in and were like, have a nice flight, you know? Well, <laughs> that was it. And uh, yeah, they got, they're like, so I was six weeks, six weeks on my back. Um, so then back in South Africa, I was obviously back in other Six weeks on your back? On my back, yeah. The only time I could get out of bed was probably in the fifth week when I could rock roll over. So before that, anything I had to do the toilet, things like that, it was just like... Six weeks? Yeah, it was pretty hectic. I was six weeks, six weeks on my back. Um, so then back in South Africa, I was obviously back in other... Six weeks on your back? On my back, yeah. The only time I could get out of bed was probably in the fifth week when I could rock roll over. So before that, anything I had to do the toilet, things like that, it was just like... Six weeks? Yeah, it was pretty hectic. Patrick Alcani, he was like, really concerned you know 
And uh, I remember I said to him, no, no, I want to finish. This is going to be my biggest win in my career. And I was yeah. like, man, I'm so close to winning. I've got to win this thing, you know. Um, my mentality was like, I've got to win this thing. How far to go was it? 200 meters. So yeah. I thought, I can do this, you know. And uh, got on the bike, brought me a new bike, jumped on it. And then, uh, man, everything just started going hazy and unclipped. And I was like, stop for a bit. And then Patrick said, no, he'll push me over the line. So he basically pushed me over the line. And when I crossed the line, I looked for the first piece of grass. And I just rode towards that and just fell over. And then, so anyway, back to the, so six weeks on my back. And it was only South Africa that found out my jaw was broken. I kept complaining in Turkey saying, I can't close my mouth. And they were saying, no, no, you lost a tooth. But because the jaw had split that much, they said I lost a tooth. But the jaw had actually split that much that it looked like I'd lost a tooth. Because when we go back to South Africa, the guy counts my teeth. He's like, your teeth are, yeah, your jaw is broken, definitely. So I had to get the jaw wired shut. And then it was like elastic bands and I had to get like liquidated liquid food for another six weeks. I remember I was like 60 kilos, you know, and now I'm like 71, 70. So like I got down to 60 kilos pretty quickly, lost all this muscle. And yeah, then it was the fight was on to get a contract again because, you know, I remember Hunter saying to me, listen, mate, uh, it's great. You've got all these people and back and you get well soon, Daryl, and you keep talking about your back. But did you want to get a contract straight away? Oh, oh I, I knew Bollywood was folding that year. We knew that. So yeah. I was like, knew it was going to be... But did that deter you, that crash? Uh, no, like... no, no, I was, I was still like, no, I'm going to get back. My, yeah, yeah. my focus was, I'm going to get back to Europe. Yeah, okay. I just went to Turkey. I was like, still like... Phew, Even man, after I'm six winning. weeks in the bed, it just drove it. Yeah, I just, I, I just wanted to get back. Yeah, okay. And uh, am I... When was to Turkey? 2009, April. 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 Okay, so it was early in the year. So I got back to Europe probably at the end of July, I think. Yeah, I got back racing. to Europe. I was racing. I did all the Italian one days. Got at the end head, of the year? Got my head kicked in for the first three or four. And then... Uh, When's this in September? In October. September, yeah. You know, all those Emilia, Bigelli yeah. and all those races. I was just getting my head kicked in there. Um, but I... Super I, lean. I remember Hunter saying to me, stop telling people your back, something's wrong with your back and you're trying to fix that because that's going to be your thing that's going to be against you when you need a contract. And I was like, oh, take advice when it's given to you, take advice, say nothing about your back anymore and just keep racing if you feel up to it. And I got... Even you know, though your back was... Oh, my back screwed. wasn't 100%, but... No, my back was fine. I'd, I'd done the proper rehab and I looked after it. Um, that's why I say six weeks in bed so it could all mesh properly together and all of that but I had to show the people that I could race again yeah. so it was about coming back and that's when Johan Brunel gave me the contract to go with Radio Shack and that was 2010 yep. so 2010 just one year with Radio Shack yeah. I saw was that just a one year contract and you thought they gave you a chance so yeah they? I think they gave me a chance because I think they were hesitant with the back um, and uh, yes yeah, so I got a year contract there and kind of like I said that was the time when I was like you know, oh, okay, I've made it here. I thought, oh, I mean, boy, I mean, Radio Shack, I mean, Lawrence's team. Mm. You know, I flew to South Africa with Lawrence, well, like living the dream, you know, yeah. like, wow, rock star. And uh, I kind of took it all for granted, I think. I kind of was just on this, like, I was doing my job, but you and I both know doing a job in cycling is not enough these days. No, it's not. You know, you do your job and you go the extra mile, that's what keeps you in the, keeps you in the team. It doesn't, doesn't, still doesn't guarantee you a job, but it, it helps. So I think there I was just doing my job. And then uh, at the end of the year, there were obviously guys from other teams that were doing a better job. And I struggled to find a contract. 
And that's when I signed with this amazing Australian team, which is Pegasus. Another, another, another little, little hiccup along the way. This was a good hiccup. This was a really good hiccup. That was like, you know, December, I think we were, Ali, Ali had come over, you know, we had our training camp in Noosa, which was a bit weird. We hadn't built, like... Got, so wait, rewind a sec. So you got to the end of October... And Radio Shack said, we're not going to sign you? Or was it the vice versa? You found a contract with Pegasus and went, I'm going to go. Well, it was well, it was strange because I was asking Dirk DeMol and Jan wouldn't pick up the phone. These normal normal yeah. Brunel style, wouldn't pick up the phone. Um, Dirk DeMol couldn't get a straight answer out of him. He's the head director. He was like the head director, couldn't get a straight answer out of him. It was only Ekimov, who was also director there. And I said to Eki, I said, hey man, I can take bad news. I don't need good news all the time. If I don't have a contract yet, just tell, tell me, me now. And even he was like, well, have you spoken to Johan? I'm like, yeah, have you tried to get hold of Johan? Yeah. Not very easy to get hold of him. So yeah, no, it's not, not, not looking good. good. And then I said, well, I have an opportunity to go to this Australian team. And he, then he said, well, if you have an opportunity, I suggest you take it. Mm. That was enough for me. I was like, okay, at least give me some kind of insight. So you yeah. were initially weren't that positive towards Pegasus and you're just like well now that I know, I know Radio Shack is probably not going to happen yeah. I'm going to go with this Pegasus yeah exactly and yeah. it wasn't because I believed wow Pegasus is going to be this amazing team it was my actual only way out um, to give a bit of background for people who don't know about Pegasus it was like I think and you can fill the gaps is that it was starting out it was going to be this new Australian team a lot of, lot of funding behind it it was the old Fly V Australia team merging into the first Australian World Tour team and they, they grabbed all these good riders to come. Yeah, they grabbed McEwen. I mean, there were a lot of us that were burned by it. Robbie Hunter was in it, Christian Knees. Um, geez, I'm trying to think of all the other guys that do there. Um, ben Day was there. Uh, there was a lot of guys. There was heaps of guys. Johnny Cantwell. Mm. It was, so what happened then? So it was December. I remember sitting at the at the local surfing club there with Robbie McEwen and uh, you know I just done a training camp in Noosa it was like a really weird training camp because no bikes were built nothing we had one mechanic there it was like guys if you've got time to build your bikes build them it was like weird it was the weirdest camp ever we had a lot of fun but uh, and I remember Swain Taft was also there and I'm like ah oh, man this camp doesn't feel like a camp like a team like it doesn't doesn't feel right you know, we like went through and we're like, oh, maybe it's Australian way, you know, maybe it's a bit different. Well, the checkout is maybe it's all fun and games until we race and then it's serious. And Henry Gradant was the director there and he was like, no, everything is all cool. And then we're having a beer with Robbie McEwen because I stayed on a few weeks after to train there with Robbie and my, my wife came over to visit. And uh, we were just having like dinner and Robbie said, oh, I've got to, got to have a quick word with you at the bar quickly. I'm like, oh, okay. Go to the bar there. It was like, oh, you might want to order a, a, another beer, mate. I'm like, oh, standard. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and uh, ordered a beer. And he's like, um, so I don't want to alarm you, but tonight you better make some phone calls to Europe. And I was like, well, what's up? It's like, apparently this team's folded. There's no money. There's no sponsors. Gillette that was supposed to be sponsoring. It's Chris White that said he's got this magical team. Doesn't even have a team. He's got no guarantees in place. Um, all of that. So you better phone Europe. And don't tell anyone because the more guys you tell, the less chance you have of getting yeah, yeah, a contract. Yeah. And I remember thinking, well, Robbie Hunter is not here, but he broke his ankle in South Africa. And I'm like, well, there's one guy who stood in my career that's always had my back. And I remember Robbie. phoning Robbie and says, listen, man, I don't want to give you the bad news, but you're going to hear it probably tomorrow. Phone Europe, it's time this has happened. 
and uh, you know, obviously he phoned around, and he actually grabbed my spot in Radio Shack. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it's not to say I would have got my spot back, but I just, I was just like, she's the irony. I was being the good guy there. I said, hey, it was actually McEwen and him that both got a spot in Radio Shack, and I couldn't get back in. <laughs> I was thinking, she's the good guy. I was just like, hey, Rob. And I, I never ever held it against him, you know, like because I would have done the same. You, 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 you're in the mode of desperation. You got to find a job. You got to secure your job, you know, and. And we would have, any of us would have taken any job we could have got at that point. And uh, yeah, so then I got forced to race back in South Africa. I you mean, went I, back to I couldn't, MTN. I couldn't get a ride in Europe. And I was back you, to racing the local 100k club rides, races back in South Africa. Going from Wilter, going from the year before flying with Lance in his jet to South Africa as like Daryl and Lance and we're going here and doing all these fun things. And racing world tour races to coming back to my local club race and just being like waking up at five five race starts at six is waking up sometimes at four and i was just like but what that- am i doing and then i've then i've gone and i've also i've also said to my wife's you know dad just before that like you know i want to marry your daughter so this has all happened and I've asked Ali to marry me. I've lost my job. I'm racing local races. And he's like, you going to be able In a joke, he said, are you going to be able to look after her? Yes. And I was like, it yeah. Is jo- it is a joke, but it's probably not really a joke because I would be asking the same question if I saw this. Well, you this sh- professional person who's just lost his job is now... You can see that. Yeah. You can oh, see the pattern coming. I can he's gone from hero to zero. <laughs> Where's he going from here? And, Were uh, you shitting yourself? Were you like, how can I ever get back? Uh, I, I was pretty like nervous and I just I just I mean I had Andrew Andrew McQuaid I think was my manager at that point and I remember just haggling him saying listen man and he's like well it's just, there's nothing available and I just remember going right just take matters in my own hand and I'm just going to email every single person under the sun hmm. that I freaking know in cycling that can help me and then once I saw it wasn't really going to work out I actually with MTN, which Doug Ryder, he had like a small vision then, and he was quite keen to get MTN to the next level. And I thought, well, maybe this is an opportunity. And I and I started helping him and introduced him to cycling service, and we tried to get some races on the go. What was MTN then? Was it Continental? Continental. Yeah. So we were doing so I did like Tour of Morocco, which is like a ten day tour, yeah. and like I mean, you like the race is actually the easy part. All that it's all the crap that's on the outside, <laughs> fighting for a seat on the bus. <laughs> like fighting for dinner and that's, that's <laughs> the real race like you go to dinner with the scrum cap on Ellie. it's ridiculous like I mean those African races are, are such a different world uh, so you know gone from world tour to that and then but it was funny because I was still trying to get back to Europe and I thought well if I can't get into a European team might as well try and push this MTN and Doug to see if we can get us overseas and at least do races where I can get seen and to his credit, he actually did. He, he actually, um, we, we did sign a couple of races to do in Europe and that, but it was actually just shortly after my, I won a stage in Morocco that Stephen Kotzer, who was part of NetApp, and he was signed as a classics guy for them. And uh, he said, Oh, Koza, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's And right. he actually m- messaged me and said, Listen, we need some more help in this team. Would you be interested in coming? I didn't know he had so much pull yeah, there. Well, he was seen as the big guy then. You know, yeah. he had done like a good Roubaix, I think, the year before. Right. Maybe top 10 or something, somewhere around there. And the team had obviously... Invested in him. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he actually got me 
Did you know him at all? Didn't really know him. I knew him from Girona, but didn't know him super well. And uh, I got a. So then I got in contact with Rolf, and uh, next minute I spoke to Doug. Rolf, who was that? Rolf Aldag? No, no, Rolf. Uh, sorry, I'm. Oh, yeah, who was. Uh, Rolf Dink. Rolf, Rolf Dink. Dink, yeah. So I spoke to Rolf, and uh, anyway, deals. Deal's done. Okay, cool. Uh, I spoke to Doug Ryder from MTN. I said, listen, this has come up. He said, all right, mates, you can, we can have you there. You can go there. But look, this month is for free on us, on you, eh? Mm. So I remember writing, like, mate, for free. You're doing two of your ran, leaving two of your ran, and going then to, to Ralph Dink. And uh, thinking to myself, cheese, well, that was my bike clause, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was such a funny, funny thing. But... I mean, so so credit to them, I, I didn't have to, like, no one had to pay each other out and all that. And uh, I got back with NetApp, and my first race was Bayern Fart, and then I did Tour of Switzerland. Wow. So it was awesome to be included in the Tour of Swiss, because that was the big race, you know, yeah. it was a huge race. Were you at the level after being out uh, yeah, the so long? I think I'd worked pretty hard, and I was, I was at a pretty decent level. I got in a couple of breakaways. Um, I think I was... I was in top 10 in one or two stages in Swiss and then um, down the tour of Austria just after that and I was flying in Austria like I was nearly top 10 I think overall mm. there um, you know climbing Gross Glockner and all these climbs I was really really going well and uh, that's kind of when Greenwich surfaced but I was still in contact with Whitey and that during all this whole Pegasus thing and I knew there was a new Australian team so I was always trying to have like a bit of a keep me in mind keep me in mind and I remember it was always like Oh, we, you know, we, we're thinking about you, we're trying, and I message Shane Bannon, and like, please, you know, beg and beg and beg. And eventually, I remember chatting to Wilson in Lancaster, because they were living here in Girona, and they were like, mate, it looks good. I'm like, oh, what looks good? And they're like, I don't know, I reckon you might be in. You're, you're the last guy that's probably going to come to this oh, team. Shit. And, uh, yeah, it was. And then Norrison Whitey gave me a call and said, listen, mate, uh, do you want to join us? And I said, and I thought I want to join you guys and uh, it was a bit sad because NetApp had, had like given me the chance but I knew that the right team for me was going to be a team like Green Edge yeah and uh, I think it was probably the best decision it was a hard decision to make to leave like guys like Ralph had given me the opportunity to come back but you know I was actually fortunate that we were going that Green Edge was going to go world tour and Ralph was still pro continental there mm. and I could play that like soften the blow a little bit like oh but Ralph it's back in the world tour and that was the difference yeah and uh, you know obviously he's got an amazing team at the moment with Bora but um, yeah I think it was it was there was a tough decision to make to get back to Green Edge but that was the breakthrough again like you went back to 212 back to Green Edge and you know I think you started to find your feet again. You're like, all right, now I'm back in the world tour. I'm not going to take it for granted. And you started with the, you know, on the ground running. You want to stay straight away in the Basque country, mm. which is early in April. sort of spring, you know, yeah. springtime, really hard race. And you didn't just come back in and go, I'm just going to, like you said, with Radio Shack, do my job. You're like, I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do it well. You rode your first grand tour, which I find really surprising that it took all the way to 2012. Um, but then, you know, typical impy style, apparently you ran into another bloody speed bump at the end of that year. Um, yeah, that was Hamburg. Uh, you know, just, it was such an exciting year because everything was just new for me. I'd done the 
for my first Jira, then they pulled me out of the Jira after I let Gossi out and I said, Whoa, Gossi said, what are you doing in July? I said, oh, man, I'm going on holiday. And he said, I don't think so. I think you're coming to the Tour de France. I was like, you've got to be kidding me, man. My first Grand Tour ever. Um, so, yeah, and, yeah, then they pulled me out of the Jira, did the tour, and then I was looking forward to, it was, everything was going pretty well. Um, on a stage that year, I think it's Slovenia as well. And oh, uh, yeah, it came out of the blue, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, just uh, then we we got to the end of the year and it was Hamburg and I was leading out uh, Gossi and I think he lost the wheel on the final and I, like I'd, I'd done my effort already. I should have stopped. But, you know, then I thought, well, Gossi's not here. I might as well just keep going and see where I end up. Go for a top 20 or uh, top 15 <laughs> or whatever. So I was sprinting through traffic. I'd done my job. I was really legless and I was sprinting through traffic there, head down and just rode into a guy, another guy and we just, we, well, we just collided and... I broke my AC joint, so it was season over, and uh, it was a bit unfortunate. It was right at the end of, the, like near the end of the year. Not it's too 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 late, like to do it. Yeah, just like too late to get started. Bad timing, and uh, so I was out. Really. And you were stuck in Hamburg. For, for I was stuck time. in Hamburg for 10, 10 days there because they messed up the operation. After three days, they did the operation, and um, the fourth day they came in to check what happened, and I said. They're like, lift your arm. I'm like, oh, that's my problem. I keep telling you I can't lift my arm. And they're like, no, rubbish. And I'm like, no, I can only use my fingers to crawl up my leg. That's the way I get to the remote, is to use my fingers to drive my hand down my leg or up. That's yeah. it. I can't move my, my physical arm. No, like, no, that's funny. <laughs> Next minute, the doctor had changed and I had a new doctor and they could only operate on me in three more days' time. So there I was stuck there. And uh, I remember the team actually flying Ali up so that they said, well, at least your, your wife can be there with you. And luckily we didn't have kids at that point. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, funny story is that where we found out she was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, a, so it, was a, it was like a weird moment because like, I'd broken my AC joint and like had this double operation feeling sorry for ourselves. Then she said she wasn't feeling well. We're just on the way back from the airport and she's just taking a pregnancy test out of the blue. Said, no, nah, something doesn't feel right. I'm like, hey, you're gonna be kidding me. At the next point, she's like, I'm pregnant. We're like, okay. Did that turn? So that, that yeah. did turn. Uh, look, look, we were shocked, but I mean, I was happy. I was yeah. happy for her and I was happy for us. So I turned the season around really in a nice way. Yeah, okay. Well then, like, it seems like to me, like again, like another really tough point but then rolled into 2013, um, where I think a lot of people got to know your name because that was when you wore the yellow jersey in the Tour de France, the first South African rider to ever do that. Um, and I think at that point, you know, what was that actually like? A really big high again? Yeah, that was like, that was a moment where you just like, you, you know, you get moments you life you think, this is never probably gonna happen again. And I need to, I need to soak this up. You actually don't know what you've done, but you actually like, you just lost actually. Yeah. I remember just like, you know, turn my phone off because it was just ringing so much and I turn it back on and just ring again straight away. Uh-huh. So people are obviously just trying to phone the whole time. Like it was just nuts. And I just wasn't ready for that. And, and like, and just, you know, seeing like back home, like they made like that Friday, like a yellow Friday and everyone was going to work with yellow clothes and oh, like sh- schools were like, at their schools had like yellow jerseys on at the school and like, to see that impact was yeah. like, that was amazing, you know, and like and people talk about history and that it's only now when I'm like older, I go, man, what I did there, like 
the stars have to line up so much to get yeah. that jersey and that's why it's so special and although I knew it was special then like it's only taken me a few years now to realise because now I think I've done it before I try and do it again and you realise and, and how hard it is to Jeez, today didn't go so well. The team time trial didn't go so well, or the, you know, the didn't sprint so well. I didn't get bonus seconds. I didn't. This happened, and uh, I had to lead out, and the AT punch it. I had to wait, and and all these things just don't. Another year happens, another year, and it goes by. Hey man, and you look back at that, and you think, geez, that was a and you made the most of it too. Yeah, it was like I remember you were just in the front group towards. 15, 20 guys left and I'm like how are you still there? I you just know, that, that day I just thought I'm never going to be in this leader's jersey probably ever again in my well I wasn't sure but you got to treat it like your last yeah. right and I just thought I want to respect the jersey as much as possible I'm not one of these big riders that's like oh tomorrow's another day I'll go I win tomorrow I'm not a prolific one day racer I'm not a Sagan that's going to be like I'm going to get my moment to shine in the next 4 or 5 days and a Valverde is going to mm. win you know he's going to win somewhere and for me, those moments are precious. So if I get a leader's jersey or something like that, I want to wear it with pride because I know they don't come often for me. Yeah. So to have a jersey and like, ah, the boys were riding and even though we knew I'm going to lose to Froome or whoever today, like we, the boys still rode. Yeah. You know, and like the other teams are like, oh, respect for I'm like, yeah, man, it's like, well, we got the jersey. We know we're going to lose it, but let's respect it and... It is, a, it is a jersey that meant to be respected and we yeah, and gave it what I could. I knew I was going to get dropped. And you respected it all the way. To It was an uphill yeah. finish that day and I always remember watching it myself and listening to the commentary and the commentators, you know, Phil Liggett, Paul Sherwin, they just couldn't believe it the whole time. And Daryl Lippy, he's still there. And I was like, yeah, that's him. Yeah, no, no it's, it's, I think it was just because it was just there to and yeah it was your moment to shine I, I, only when I got dropped and then I was by myself for a bit then I get yeah, like yeah, you be a big guy mm. it was yeah, I, I would, wouldn't that that moment I know is probably not gonna well it'll never come as the first time ever again but um, yeah jeez uh, we were on cloud nine there man it yeah. was the moment where everyone was so happy my dad my pet like Everywhere, like South Africa was happy. Everyone, they, even people in South Africa are saying, this is like, we need good news, you know, and this has been great news for our country. And like, oh, just small things like that, it was like, they meant a lot. Tell me now then, so to fast forward to the next year, early the next year at national championships, you had the unfortunate positive return of a positive test. Yeah. And how... Just explain that story. I don't want to go into the details of it, but just explain to everyone who doesn't know about that what happened there and how that affected your name after such a positive year the year before. Man, we were caught off guard. Like, I remember getting the phone call here. It was just before the Tour de France. I just got an email from the team saying, um, are you going to the Tour de France? Here's the selected nine guys. And my next phone call was a... It took that long to come out. Yeah, it took them... They were holding it, though. Mm. I mean, Drag Free Sport back in South Africa was holding it. They had already said something in the beginning of the year. Oh, we've, we've got a big fish you're waiting for the perfect moment to say it. And they told me the week before the tour. Um, so I get this phone call. Hey, Daryl, uh, cycling South Africa. Oh, okay. They obviously want to know if I'm doing the tour. Yeah, and he's like, "How's the family? What's going on? Are you had a good dauphin and all this chit chat." I'm like, "Sorry, why are you phoning me? Oh, I was phoning to talk about your positive result." I'm like, "For what? 
no, for substance called prevented in the national championships. My, my first reaction was like, there's been a cock up, the names have been mixed up, the numbers, I'm like, I've got my test result here, I'm gonna check the numbers. So I said, listen, I'm pretty sure you guys have cocked up, you got the wrong guy. Were you shitting yourself at that moment? Well, I was like, and hadn't even heard of the stuff. I remember yeah, sitting what there is in the alley, it's a, it's a treatment for gout, but it's apparently been used in sport to, to hide testosterone, but you'd need to be using it in massive amounts, okay. like five grams, 10 grams or something like this. And um, I became a guru on this stuff after that, obviously. I can imagine, yeah. I remember writing it down on a piece of paper and I remember them spelling it out and I'm sitting there with Ali, we just put our son Aiden to sleep in Girona and we just like. What the fuck? We had, we had man, we had, our life had stopped. So we had, so all this is going on, whatever, we'd phone back South Africa, okay, I'm gonna fly back to home, South Africa, phone Shane Bannon, said, listen, this has happened, and I need to go sort it out. I was pretty sure it was a vet or someone else's substance, you know, it was mm. somebody else's name. Test. It wasn't my sample, for sure not. I hadn't even heard of this stuff. And I uh, got back to South Africa, we drove to Bloemfontein, did the test test, B sample, now it's come back, visual sample, it's also got prebenicid in it. Then it was this, where does this stuff come, come from? from? Yeah. And I remember some people telling us from chickens and then I was finding chicken farms and trying to f- do my own investigation. Listen, do you guys use prevention with chickens? It was a mess. And uh, it was only when we backtracked, what could because I did the time trial and I did the road race and they were two days apart. And the road race I was clean and the time trial was positive. And there was only one difference between the two is that I had the bicarb capsules Alright, I remember So you were positive from the time trial? I was positive from yeah. the time trial. So I remember going to the to the pharmacist buying the you know bicarbonate bicarbonate capsules and they counted them out on a on one of those pull counters. You know, like little thing like that. And they dispensed it into like a into like a little jar or whatever and gave yeah. me my my sodium bicarbonate which is used for lactic acid buffer for the time trial. Anyway, oh my god, cool. Go home. Anyway, came back Spoke to this, and that was the only difference. So I phoned the pharmacist. I said, "Listen, are you sure those things didn't have probenicid in it or whatever?" He's like, "No, but it's it's possible that um, you know we do dispense probenicid here. Maybe it was on the maybe it was on the on the pull counter. Maybe we didn't clean the pull counter. Oh. You got to be kidding me!" And the trace we we had done all the tests, and the traces that I found there was a billionth of a gram in my. A billionth of a gram, which was a in my, billionth of, of a, a gram. gram, which was left in my in my urine sample there, and uh, basically that was. It doesn't matter if you got a billionth of a gram or you got a ten million grams or whatever. If you just got a little bit of it in there, you're yeah, yeah, yeah. It's seen as a positive. And uh, you need you need you know once we had done the tests and things like that, they'd proven that it was contamination amounts. But you know to get to that point was hell for us man we were back home like I'd been you know the year before I had billboards on the side of the road they were going MP South Africa's hero MP South Africa's son the yellow man this that and then next year was just like the disgrace the disgrace the drug cheat the this the that and it was like so hard like I got I got like people on Facebook messaging me like uh, it's a picture that only a mother could love and like how oh, my kids are taking down their posters of you and like man hard stuff to hard yeah. stuff to read and especially when you know you haven't done anything wrong and you know 
I proved my innocence and I'm, I'm happy with that. And sure, there's still people these days that won't believe it or they will believe it or whatever. But that was a tough year, man. That was a year where I, I look back at it and I go, that taught us a lot. Like you saw your mates were, number one, the team was like fantastic. You know, they, they, they supported me. Yeah. You know, they were like, man, we know your character. We know what you like. You would never have done this. And for me, that was like, yeah. I thought they show the true colors. I won't be surprised if the team goes, listen, we're gonna we have to cut your salary, we have to stop everything. And to the credit they you know, they, they had to stop things, but obviously they were like, Listen, if it comes back all good, you've got your you got your contract, everything is fine. Mm. And I'll never forget that. Mm. You know, Shane, Jerry and those guys, like I remember speaking to Jerry and the biggest thing that sticks out for me was like I was apologizing to him saying, I'm sorry that this has happened. I'm gonna fight it. I'm gonna to have to spend a lot of money to solve the where it came from, and I'm gonna to have to sort it out properly. And he was just like, "Daryl, just how's your family?" This is Jerry Ryan, yeah, Jerry the, Ryan. the team. And yeah. for me, that when he asked how my family was, I was like, I was blown away. I was yeah. expecting, I was expecting like, oh, I won't be surprised if he's like, "What were you like? Are you sure? Da, 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 what went wrong?" And his first reaction was like, "How's your family?" I was like, mm. "Man, this is like." That for me was like, coming I'll never forget. Like at that moment where you're really clinching onto everything you have and a guy asks you that and you're, like, you're expecting like a bit of a blowout and <laughs> you get that. Yeah. Oh man, that was just like, hey, these guys got my back. Like they at least believe in me like I believe in myself. And, and you repaid the team. I think you repaid the team in the way that you raced your first race back in August. You went to Truro, Alberta. Not a massive race, but still a difficult race to win. Any race is difficult to win. You went there and won the Tour of Alberta. First race back after being out of competition for, what was it, six months or four months? No, uh, it was about three, three months or so, I think. Three months. And yeah, you know what, I actually went in there, I was so angry, man. I was just freaking fuming inside. Because you got cleared? Because I got cleared, and because of uh, I was more pissed off, by the way, it was all handled in South Africa, because they really waited to nail me. They could have brought this up in April and it would have been sorted and I would have done the tour and I would have, it all would have been done right. But because I've been so, so like mischievous and tried to nail me when they knew it was gonna be like a big blob for them. And that cost me and I was like, they've taken something away from me, you know? And I, I, like, I just couldn't give that up. Mm. I was just like, I, I was so angry and I was Is that back. what fired you when you were training in that hard period to train? Oh man, I remember training. There were days, there were so many different days. There were days I'd ride my bike and I'd just be crying. I would leave the house, I'd get down the road, 5k down the road, and like Quaddy was still like telling me, if you made if you're up for efforts, it'd be a good idea. This you is Mark. Because we were still like, coach, yeah, yeah, Mark Quad. And I was like, Man, I'm gonna get back to you. I was positive I was gonna solve, solve this thing and I knew I was gonna flip and get into the nitty gritty of it and I was gonna solve it. And I was like training and then some days I'd like ride and just burst into tears and just come from nowhere. I just ride and be like so hard done by. One of those comments would get into you. Yeah, just like riding and your phone's ringing and they've, oh, we've come up with it. Like this is, no, no, we can't, this has happened. Oh, we're waiting for this. It hasn't arrived today. We still got to do the test. Blah, blah. And like, you just feel so hopeless. Mm. And then I cry and then I just jump in my car. It's following me, you know, and then just drive home. And the guy's following me. He's like Ali's cousin back then. He was just like, 
that's a lot to deal with, man. My brother was following me one day too, and he just saw me like crying on the bike, and he drove next to me, and I remember him like, "You're right." And I was just like, "It's no, just too much, man. Yeah. It's just too much. I'm trying to train. I'm trying to like, you know, it was it was so hard because it was just like that, you know. And then so I was so angry with all of that, and I was just like, now it's all solved. Now it's all cool. Now I'm supposed to just forget. Yeah. And I can't just forget. And but I was so happy to be back racing, and I got to Alberta. And actually, Dumoulin was probably the first guy I saw there at training. I was riding myself, and he actually turned around, and he came up to me. He's like, hey, man, Tom, I'm Dumoulin. Tom Dumoulin. And I remember him coming to me, and he was, you know, he was starting to become like a, a name. And I remember he comes to me like, hey, man, it's good to see you got cleared. I'm very happy for you. Mm. I was like, oh, that's, I've just arrived. I've just seen one of the first cycle I've seen. I'm so glad that's been the reaction. I was okay. so worried about what the reaction was yeah. going to be like. And at like the food hall, I was like, oh, and a couple guys came up to me like, hey man, good to see you back. And we, we never doubted you. And like, you know, it was, it was nice. I was actually like, geez, a couple guys on my side here. Like, that for me was, was great. Yeah. And then I was with the team again and then we started racing. And I was, I was just sprinting for hot, like intermediate sprints. Just, I, I was just back, baby. I was going for everything. We were yeah. racing, we were leading out. I was just so over, I was just like, every opportunity I see today, I'm going to go for it. Yeah. And uh, I ended up winning. Tom was leading the race, and it was came to the last stage, and it was wet and rainy and that. And I said to Yatesy and Christian Meyer and what they were all on the team, Matty Hayman, like we're going for the stage win. And they're like, oh, you should want to try and get some bonus seconds in the in the in the sprint intermediate because it was like nine seconds or whatever, and ten seconds to win. I said, nah, fuck it, we all go, we're going all in. We're going all in. It's raining as shit. We're going all in. We win, we win this race or we don't win this race. We go for the finish. 10 bonus seconds. That's it. So what happened was Tom actually lit it up on the last lap and dropped all the sprinters. And then we had a full team and we did the lead out of one. So, yeah, it was such an awesome race. And then we won with Gero in like just after that in Quebec and Montreal. And, uh... Yeah, well, yeah like, you were fourth there too. Yeah, so, fourth there. So I carried some great form, but I don't like to this day. The, my coach Quaddy says this, you, your numbers weren't even great. I think inside, I had my best world championships that year. I was right there until flipping last two caps they climb and they rode Gero and them rode away like six guys, and then I just got gapped. I was the last guy that just didn't make it there, and I finished like thirteenth or sixteenth or something. But it's my best world champs too in Pomferrada and. Like, just things just stop facing And you, you look at that preparation and you'd say to anyone, no way would you ever want that preparation, but it shows you how much the determination, yeah. how much the mind can do. Yeah, I was, I, I just like, every time I got on that bike, I was just like, man, it's flipping, I'm so over trying to prove everything. I'm just like, and I flipping showed my legs there, that's it. I want to talk to you now, lastly, about this transition. And this is, maybe this was the point that, like I said to you, when you joined Green Edge, you did become a little bit of a domestique. You were leading Gossi out and you were doing a fantastic job and you were one of the guys I was sort of aspiring to to try and be a better lead out man. And then from there, you transitioned to a, a little bit more of a super domestique being Simon Guerin's right-hand man, whether it was leading him out in the sprint, whether it was just being right next to him all day long. But then there's come a, a period now where Simon retired in 2018 well, not retired, moved on from Green Edge and then has retired last year. But then you had to step up. And even though you were picking up your results along the way, suddenly now this expected pressure came where I'm not saying you filled Simon's shoes, but to a degree, you became the person who had to win 
for instance, Tour Down Under. Mm. You came to Tour Down Under last year, and I was like, we're here for you to win. And I want to talk about that transition, like, you know, and then you've backed it up this year again and won it again. And now it seems like to me that you're starting to get your hands around like this expectation, which a lot of winners struggle to. Mm. It's like, okay, it's okay to win when no one expects you to, but suddenly when people go, we're bringing you here to win, that Mm. becomes different. What's that transition been like from domestique to winning when you sort of get the opportunity to now suddenly being expected to win? Um, I think because I've been around guys like Gero and and Gossi and that and other leaders in the team, um, because I've always been involved in that final, being one of those final men has still got a different, it's still got that added pressure on it. Mm. But, um, you know, Simon was very, like not demanding, but he expected a lot. He expected you to be there. Yeah. You know, if he made you his final man, that was it. Yeah. You were the you were designated final man. He was counting on you. And that was something that I fed on. Yeah. You know, I liked, liked that. I liked, like, hey, this guy, like, he's expecting me to be there. And, like, I'm going to step down. up. I'm going to step up. I'm going to be there, you know. And and so they were, they were good people to learn from yeah. because it's, obviously Simon has a different way of running his thing. He's very systematic and, like, programmed into he knows that I've got to do this I've got to X and Y all these extras whereas I'm different you know yeah. uh, I've seen maybe I've learned from them where where I could see that it was becoming too much for them you know definitely the end of Simon's career he was probably like he had enough of taking on the full reins of being the man mm. and it, it does I don't think you can be at that top level taking that pressure to be the man for 10 yeah. years yeah. you know um Especially unless you're like a guy like Sagan who can win even when he's got bad legs. Yeah. You know, guys like Gero and me and think you need to have good legs. everything you need to be hundred percent to win. Um so I think with those guys I, I kind of learned a lot of maybe now is to like all right, although we've won the year before, I could see kind of see what happened the next year when like say Gero won the year before and he'd come back the next year, you could see he was more more pressured. Like, yeah. he, he put the pressure on himself. No one else was. It was just the way he dealt with it. And he, and he would, like, then be like, now I need to do ice baths, and I need to do... Extra I need to do extra, extra this, and I need to do trainer, and train for the heat. And, mm. and I think those are things that might have... Tipped him over the edge? Well, I mean, I think... No, tipped them over the edge. I think in general, I think it's... So what have you done differently then? I think, I think I've just stayed me, really. I yeah. think I've just kept it simple. I think yeah. I've tried to simplify it. Um, do you catch yourself I, out sometimes when you're getting caught down that road going, I need to do this, and you go, hang on, I said to keep it simple, or you just yeah, don't yeah. need to do that? No, there is, there is times where I'm like, I need to do the gym session today, I said I was going to do it, and I haven't done it. and you know, That's actually where Ellie brings in a lot of like, mm. it comes in from a different angle, and she's like, hey, you've done the work. Do you think that's, that's not going to be the end of it all? If that's going to win you the race, geez, well then, I mean, you also need to look at it and go, oh, that's probably right. Like, yeah. you know? So um, I think I've learned so much from guys like Gero and that's how to prepare, um, how to rally the troops. Um, also, being a, also being a lead-out guy, how I've had leaders speak to me and I know what gets me going and what gives me confidence then so I've had to change that role as a leader because I always used to kind of doubt myself a little bit and I because I was never the leader mm. so I could always go 
you know, whether I drop Gera like 200 meters or 150, it's the same. There's, yeah. there's no finish line there for yeah, me. Yeah. It's like he's got to decide if he wants to win, if he really wants. So to change to be the winner where there's a definite line, that is different. Yeah. And I didn't back myself enough the first years when, you know, Gera had left and Bling had left and all those guys. And I kind of was still in the like, unsure and I didn't want to let the team down, didn't want all the pressure, didn't want the guys to like, but I actually realized only later, like now, is that when I put myself back into, if I was working for Imps, what would I want to hear? Yeah. Would I want to hear I don't back myself? Or, or, or do I want to hear like what I used to hear from Gero yeah. and these guys and bling, I'm up, I'm going for it. I, I, I want to do well today. I want to, guys, I'm ready for this. Yeah. And then it was only when I started like using kind of what I learned as a lead out man or what I would thrive on and I brought that into like, now being a leader, like I remember, there was a stage in there was a, there was that stage I went in down under. I wasn't feeling flash. Boy started riding, and I was like, "Shit, it's actually up to Richie to ride. Yeah. It's not up to us. Richie is the favourite here. I won last year, but I'm no one's talking about me as the favourite. Corkscrew, yeah. and I was like, <sighs> and even Dave, Dave McKenzie, phone. Why is it? Just want to know why you guys are riding. Why is now we're going for imps? You know why do you like backs me? You know mm. if I, if he, he comes to the start and he's like, nah, we're going for imps. We're going bang. We're in. No no question about it. And I've actually learned to like use that. Yeah. Whereas in the past I used to be like, shit. Oh, Feel the pressure. Now the guys are. Yeah. See what happens if I don't. And then I was thinking, as a leader, man, when Bling didn't win or Gary didn't win or Gossy didn't win. They said sorry and we moved on. As long as you knew they gave everything for it. And I'm like, I need to, yeah, if I don't win, I don't win. That's it. Yeah. Like, it's not because I didn't try and it's not because we didn't try. It's important that I install this confidence in the boys and I'm not going to back out. So I just kept quiet. And yeah. I was like, geez, I feel right up here. I'm like, like, not feeling super, you know, but okay, the boys are riding. I was just like, back yourself, just back yourself. And then I won. And I was like, ah, it was like a breakthrough ride today because I felt I didn't back out. I didn't give them any reason to doubt me. We had our strategy. We had Lucas, he was going to wait for me. We had all of that in place. And I just thought, the minute I start saying, I'm not sure, are we going to have the same drive down into the gorge? Yeah. Are we going to have the same plan on the hill? Are the guys going to wait? Are they going to think, oh, maybe I should have my own chance? And from that way, I've learned from Gero and those guys. Like, no. Have a plan, stick to it. If you're not have good, the confidence. You need to you yeah. need to embrace that. And I think that's been a big change this year from last year. Wow. Whereas last year was like I could still shoulder some pressure onto Caleb. You know, he was the sprinter there. He we were going for him and actually I used him a lot last year to like just take some of the pressure. Take some of the pressure and I was you know, media, all that stuff. I don't need all that. And I'll silently work in the background. But then this year changed, you know, going in as the sole leader. And then I was like how am I going to do this? And that's where I've actually made the switch. Made the switch, and I think that's been a good, good thing about believing in myself, and then also, but giving that back to the boys because they feel for that. Yeah. The minute you put doubt in them, that's when it comes back. Comes back. Mate, I think that's a fantastic point to finish on. A really positive note. Um, got the new one days away. A little baby on its way. That's um, it. I want to say thanks for coming on today. Um, thanks for the beer. No worries. It's been a dry argument for the last half an hour, so we need another beer. I can talk too much sometimes. Eh? <laughs> 
I want to say, um, drop me a line on Twitter or uh, Instagram, Life in the Peloton. I want to hear from you guys. And I want to say thanks to my new producer, Lara, who's been doing a great job behind the scenes. And there's a new podcast coming up every two weeks. So, Daryl, thanks a lot, mate, for being on. Thanks, Mitch. Cheers. Cheers. Ah, oh, that was quite a chat, eh?